Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. This is very much about solar energy. This is very much about clean energy, but it's also about helping ensure that we have an equitable, just future. Hey there, solar warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I'm thrilled that once again, you've chosen to spend this time here with me. And I'm excited to bring you today's guest. Jason Edens has been developing solar and renewable financing mechanisms for nearly two decades. His innovation and hard work in America's heartland has earned the energy freedom of hundreds of families formerly dependent on energy assistance from the U.S. government. Today, we hear his story and learn how the Rural Renewable Energy Alliance is offering innovative financing that could free up $5 billion a year in funding. That's right. Deploying solar energy could pay for President Trump's famous Southern Wall every year into perpetuity. You'll find 165-plus other inspiring and influential leaders' stories over at mysuncast.com. And while you're there, do check out our own Suncast tribe and subscribe to the newsletter so you don't miss a single episode or announcement. For now, get ready for another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Okay, Solar Warriors, today we have a real opportunity to dig in with someone who is doing real work in the rural areas of the United States, really digging into how to fight energy poverty with solar power. Mr. Jason Edens, the founder and executive director of Renewable Energy Alliance, Rural Renewable Energy Alliance, right, Jason? That's right. Usually we truncate it to just Renewable Energy Alliance because it's such a tongue twister. But it goes by R-R-E-A-L, real. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So Jason started this nonprofit back in 2000 to develop low-income community solar in partnership with a federal energy assistance program. If you have no idea what that is, sit tight. We're going to tell you all about it and why fixing this problem would pay for Trump's wall literally in one year. So Jason is a licensed building contractor and a longtime solar installer in his home state of Minnesota, where he and his wife run real as well as care for a small pack of dogs. We're going to go back in time and I want you to use this as a springboard to talk a bit about the core piece of your business, which is the Federal Energy Assistance Program. But take me back to a time where the idea of the Federal Energy Assistance Program actually became real for you. It became sort of visceral and you understood how it works and that there was really a problem there. I I want to use this time to set up what the problem is and how that actually pulled you into the solar power industry. Well, the genesis story or the origin story of real is personal for me because when I was going to grad school back in 99, I actually ran out of money during the heating season in Minnesota, which can be precarious. 
at that point in time, I was familiar with the Federal Energy Assistance Program because I grew up in a family that was intermittently dependent on energy assistance. So I kind of knew the suite of services that I could depend on as a low-income student. And so when I ran out of money during the heating season, I called the local energy assistance service provider. And rather than asking for bill assistance, I asked for a no-interest loan or maybe even a low-interest loan so I could buy a solar energy system to meet my own energy needs rather than depend on energy assistance as a safety net. Well, they said no. I said, oh. And then there was a remarkable stroke of serendipity because literally the next day, a family friend called. And that family friend was selling a home. The new buyer, as a condition of the purchase agreement, said, get that eyesore off the house. Well, that eyesore was a fully functional solar heating system. And so my wife and I literally drove down the next day and went dumpster diving. And we put this system in our truck. We installed it with lots and lots of help from friends and family. And almost immediately, it saved us enough money that we literally did not need energy assistance. So that was kind of the aha moment. That was the point at which I realized that if solar energy can empower a low-income family like myself in a very challenging, rigorous climate, right, then it's probably worthy of consideration elsewhere. And so that was the point at which we began to explore. I began to explore how solar could be integrated into energy assistance and how it could empower low-income families like myself. I continue to be in awe every time I hear that story, Jason. It's a fantastic example of how the technology that we know and love so well, how it works to empower and liberate folks from the need for assistance. And I think it's emblematic that the gift that was given to you uh, actually created a scenario where you no longer qualified for the very program that you'd reached out to. I think that is amazing. However, I think that it, it's worth us taking a little bit of time to actually dig into the, the history and the structure, the infrastructure of the program itself. So can you help me unpack what the Energy Assistance Program is, how it's used as a safety net nationally, who the stakeholders are, and how much money gets poured into it? Absolutely. That's an essential question for this conversation because our work is really focused on the national integration of solar into the energy assistance program. So obviously that really begs the question, why and what are we working with here? Well, although I was living in energy poverty, I have to acknowledge that the experience that I had is probably not nearly as challenging as what many of our friends and family members and neighbors experience on an annual basis. In fact, in the United States, about one in eight families struggle with what we call energy poverty. So if a family has to choose between home energy and other basic needs like health care or housing, we're living in energy poverty. And again, this is something that nearly 10 to 15% of the U.S. population experiences on an annual basis. And in the most extreme situations, it's literally the heating or eating conundrum. So if we just imagine one of our loved ones having to choose between heating or eating, you know, that really evokes the challenge that 
right, that many of our neighbors face on an annual basis. Well, fortunately for families that are struggling with energy poverty, there is a federal and national safety net that ensures their well-being. It's called energy assistance or sometimes heating assistance or fuel assistance. Technically, it's the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, and it serves 96% of the counties in the United States. So this service is literally wow. Key West, Florida to Point Barrow, Alaska, from Eastport, Maine to San Diego, California. It covers the entire United States and it provides a critical service. It ensures the well being of our low income community members, right? But it's a very expensive, very carbon intensive hmm. program just in the state of Minnesota. We spend more than $100 million every single year providing bill assistance. And again, I'm not being disparaging about the program because it is essential, but it just begs the question, is there another way? Is there a better way? Now, that's just in Minnesota, right? So if we look at Montana and Maine and Missouri, Massachusetts, we're actually looking at about three and a half to $5 billion a year that are spent providing bill assistance to low-income families. But another interesting shortcoming of the program is that investment that we're making, that $5 billion annual investment that we're making, only serves one-fifth of the eligible population. So that's a massive investment. We're hemorrhaging public resources without actually empowering low-income families and without actually addressing one of the root causes of poverty. Basically, what we're asking is, is energy assistance a stopgap or a solution? Is energy assistance providing or postponing a solution? And the other major issue, of course, with energy assistance is that that $5 billion investment goes directly to our friends in the utility sector. Over time, energy assistance in, in some way is basically serving as a fossil fuel subsidy. And even some international bodies have called it out as such. For example, the OECD has written a variety of papers basically describing the U.S. energy assistance program as a fossil fuel subsidy. So we also need to ask ourselves, can we provide this same service in a way that's appropriate with our climate goals? Can we decarbonize LIHEAP? Can we provide the critical, necessary service of energy assistance, but can we do it with clean energy. More right. specifically, can we do it with solar? It blows me away, Jason, that there's so much money. I alluded to it in the intro. So much money being deployed in the name of assistance and actually providing assistance, but only for 20% of the population in distress. And it's not a small token of capital that is set aside. I remember in the conversation you and I had in our, in our pre-interview, you described how much lobbying goes into making sure this money gets allocated. I mean, it's, it's akin to the farm bill in terms of a staple subsidy that we depend on as a nation and that most people have no idea it exists or how it works. The last point that you made as it being a de facto subsidy for the fossil fuel industry, I want to dig into before we get into your business model. Explain to me how fundamentally kind of the mechanics work that the fossil fuel industry vis-a-vis -vis the utilities really depend on this subsidy? Utilities all across the United States are very familiar with and a part of the energy assistance service delivery model. 
So whether they're an electric utility or a natural gas utility, whether they're a propane provider or an oil provider, most utilities in the United States have some working relationship with the energy assistance program. So essentially, when a low-income family applies for energy assistance, which, by the way, is an annual recurring process, right? So when a family applies, they're basically acknowledging that they're unable to meet their own energy needs. So the energy assistance service provider, on their behalf, will pay a portion of their energy bill directly to the utility, again, regardless of whether it's gas or electric uh, utility, the energy assistance service provider literally pays that family's energy bill or a portion of that family's energy bill directly to the utility. So the utilities have really come to depend on to expect this income from this program. And some electric utilities almost treat some of the larger electric utilities almost treat the energy assistance revenue as an accrued receivable on their balance sheet. In other words, it's something that, you know, they're- Forecasted they're, revenue. Exactly. They're very much expecting it. Another interesting feature of energy assistance is that in the parlance of energy assistance, there are essentially two different types of states. There are heating states and cooling states. Right. So in the cooling states, the vast majority of the energy assistance dollars are delivered to electric utilities. Right. In the heating states, it's a combination. A lot of natural gas utilities, a lot of propane providers, and of course, a lot of electric utilities. And you mentioned the intermediaries. I think these are called community action agencies. Is that right? The folks that actually are responsible for deploying these services? That's exactly right. Gotcha. We'll come back to how these community action agencies work. But it seems to me that the work that you guys do, especially given that you've set it up as a nonprofit has as much a social justice bent as any solar company I've ever seen started. I mean, if not more, explain to me a bit about the infrastructure that you guys are looking to set up. How does Real disrupt this service in a way that creates stability for these families and actually stability fiscally for our government? And I'd love for you to also just talk about that social justice piece and what that means for Real and, and even why you decided to set this up as a not-for-profit entity? So our organization has a service model rather than an enterprise model. We have developed a program that is really intended to empower low-income communities. So rather than designing a business model around revenue generation for our organization, we're really trying to create a replicable service model. Well, then break it down for me. Help me understand how this becomes programmatic and why, how as a nonprofit, you guys can make that more effective. So earlier you asked about community action agencies. So just very briefly, in order to describe how our program is scaling and how we've designed our program, we need to speak a little bit about the community action agency. So the community action agency is a fixture in the United States, but it's very much of an unsung hero in America's fight against poverty. In fact, the Community Action Agency was birthed during the LBJ administration and the war on poverty in the mid-60s. So it was at that point in time that the Community Action Agency was actually started. There are now more than a thousand community action agencies across the United States that provide a wide variety of critical services for low-income communities, including Head Start, 
weatherization, uh, a wide variety of services, just a, a suite of services, one of which is energy assistance. So most community action agencies are the local energy assistance service provider. So what do they do? They identify low-income families. They do income verification. They ensure that a family is, in fact, living in poverty. If they are, they then, based on that family's energy burden, administer energy assistance. They decide how much that family needs, and they coordinate that bill assistance with low-income families. Our program is intended to basically be inserted into that same service delivery model. However, rather than simply paying a low-income family's energy bills, we work with the community action agency to identify homes or families that would benefit from either a rooftop solar solution a subscription to a community solar array that's managed by and hopefully owned by the community action agency. And that model is what we call community solar for community action. And Nico, one of the things I think it'd be really fun to talk about is there's obviously a, a, ra a rapidly growing discourse around low-income solar, right? But I think one of the things that's unique about our work is rather than a patchwork of low-income solar models for different markets, we're really excited about community solar for community action because potentially with a little bit of political will, we could roll out community solar for community action across the country in the proverbial overnight, right? Especially because what you just described, community action agencies form that infrastructure, not just as a delivery mechanism, but a vetting uh, entity. Exactly. Such a difficult piece to set up as an individual company. Yeah, a lot of the overhead that goes into the cost of uh, the customer acquisition cost exactly. goes directly into that that infrastructure, you know, I've got goosebumps. That's so refreshing <laughs> to hear you say that because oftentimes that's lost on, on folks, but people in the solar community really understand the challenges of customer acquisition. So if the community action agency be our customer acquisition partner, it sounds like uh, a bit of, of a franchise model. Is that accurate? Well, it certainly could be developed in that way. I guess our thinking is that this is a model that the solar community as a whole, that your solar warriors across the country could embrace and be a part of. So although we're actually doing this work in the upper Midwest and a couple other markets in the United States, we really want to encourage our peers in the solar industry to do this in their communities and be the developers and be the providers. Yeah. You know, I really want to introduce you and get you to spend some time with John Bonanno over at New Energy Nexus, because what the work they're doing for Opportunity Zones is something that you guys could really repackage for your work. I could totally see how you would repackage the service in the template that they're doing and, and the, the business sort of the business model switch that they made from even they were thinking of building a fund and, and just in servicing the opportunity in the solar sector by building a fund and deploying capital. Instead, they said, you know what, let's build all the infrastructure will be the legal zoom of, of solar for opportunity zones. It seems to me that you have an opportunity because you've spent so much time thinking about how to solve this problem and putting the documentation in place, the, the infrastructure, et cetera. As a nonprofit, you're uniquely positioned to be able to say, come to us. We'll help you establish this in your state. We'll take a minimal fee just for processing and we'll teach you how to do this. And it would, like you said, it would literally proliferate seemingly overnight a model that could be utilized in all states. I'm really excited about that because we're really excited about opportunity zones and pay for success and pay for performance. And we actually think it's the future of solar finance. It totally is. 
Well, we'll get to the future of solar finance right now, actually, because one of the questions I have, and I'm sure that you're thinking they're listening to this conversation, is how does real make money? I mean, I just referred to like a way that you could make money, but you have a business model. You're able to do this since since 2000, which is remarkable. 19 years, you've been providing for your family and for the employees of real as a nonprofit. Perhaps you could also give us some examples of how this model that you have structured is at work in other sectors so that we can sort of make some analogs. Well, my main answer to that, Nico, is no margin, no mission. A nonprofit is a business like any other. The Mm. main, it's not a business model. It's a tax designation. So we are a 501c3 nonprofit, but like any other business in the United States, of course, we have to be earning revenue in order to do the work that we're doing. So no margin, no mission is kind of our mantra here at Real. So while we're doing service projects on behalf of low-income communities and affordable housing providers, we're certainly harvesting a margin so that we can keep our doors open and our lights on and keep on mm. keeping on. There's no doubt about that. A lot of people have the impression that a nonprofit is just that. It doesn't actually profit. We certainly have profit on projects that we deliver. It's modest and we're not making a lot of money. And that's not what motivates most of the folks that work here. But obviously, we have a team of nearly 20 people and we're paying living wages and and uh, people have great jobs here. So... A lot of the projects that we do, especially some of the more innovative projects, more cutting edge, more bleeding edge projects, are certainly supported partially by contributed income, by philanthropic dollars, by generous donations from some of our community members. But we would be the first to acknowledge that is not a long-term sustainable business model. Again, we'd be the first to acknowledge that, which is why we're simultaneously working to develop innovative finance models to sustain this work. We're convinced that within five years, maybe 10 years, solar will be part and parcel of the National Energy Assistance Program. So until then, we have to continue to demonstrate the efficacy of our model. And that does mean that we are somewhat dependent on philanthropic dollars. However, we're starting to have very exciting conversations about how pay-for-success finance, pay-for-performance finance, social impact bonds, opportunity zones can support the work that we're doing. As I'm sure you're well aware, pay-for-success financing is really intended for outside disruptors to bring a new model to the public sector and de-risk that innovation in partnership with that public sector actor. So we think pay for success is not only well suited for our low income solar innovation, it's also possibly a big part of the future of solar finance. I personally believe that the tax credit is ephemeral. And if we hang our hat on that as as the primary tool of solar finance, then we're not looking around the corner adequately. I think pay for success is going to be a big part of the solar finance community in the future. I expect that most here are lost on the idea of pay for success finance because this hasn't been deployed with uh, at scale or with much success in solar. Could you bring it down to first principles and maybe point to the first project that you became aware of for how pay for success works? Yeah, absolutely. So the reason that we're excited about pay for success is because again, it's really intended for outside actors to bring a new model to the public sector. This finance innovation is actually British in its its origin. So it came across the pond some 10, 15 years ago. 
the first time it was ever deployed in the United States was for the New York State Department of Corrections. So many of you are probably familiar with Rikers Island, which is a juvenile detention center, and it's got a very high recidivism rate. It's basically a revolving door, right? A lot of the folks that end up in Rikers Island come back to Rikers Island. So a nonprofit entity approached the New York State Department of Corrections and said, hey, we can reduce your rate of recidivism by 10%. And if we do, you will basically adopt this innovation and it will, of course, dramatically reduce your recidivism, right? Well, the New York State Department of Corrections said, sounds like a good idea, but who the heck's going to pay for it? Well, the nonprofit disruptor, this outside entity, had already shouldered up with Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Goldman Sachs was going to pay for the innovation. And the thing that's particularly unique about pay for success or pay for performance is that you have to achieve a certain measurable outcome in order for the public sector actor to be obligated to pay back the debt. If that performance is not achieved, the financier does not get paid back. So in this particular case, this first pay for success or social impact bond project in the United States, they were aiming for 10%, which was mutually agreed upon by this group of stakeholders, which is another unique aspect of pay for success. It's a very collaborative process. Everyone agreed that 10% was reasonable and achievable. So Goldman Sachs paid for the innovation over a certain time horizon, about 8.4 or 8.5% reduction in recidivism was achieved. And so therefore, the New York State Department of Corrections did not have to pay Goldman Sachs back. Amazing. Now, the other interesting aspect of that story is that a lot of the financiers in pay for success are some of the usual suspects in solar finance, in global finance. So this is not a fringe finance technology. This is not a fringe finance instrument. It's a rapidly growing finance tool and it's being used all across the United States. It has not, however, been used extensively yet in solar energy. But I have one question, if it failed, What's the motivation for Goldman Sachs to want to try to apply in other areas? Why did it fail? Uh, was... Good question. So I asked the same question when I was first starting to learn about this and get excited. My understanding is that it's basically an anthropological shift. You know, people like you and I now are very committed to ensuring that any investment dollars we have offer a triple bottom line. So there's been a shift in the mindset of investors, and it's more important to a larger percentage of investors to ensure that there's some sort of social benefit. So entities like Goldman Sachs and others now have dollars at their disposal to invest in projects of this nature. That's my understanding. I hear you, but it sounds to me like pro bono work, and that's the kind of stuff that you do in the margins uh, when you are wildly profitable, which clearly Goldman Sachs and other banking entities are, but it has to be justified, and what we're looking for a mechanism that doesn't have to be justified. My initial question is, did they just choose the wrong rate of recidivism to reduce? Like, did Goldman Sachs look at this and go, okay, <clears throat> we would have done this again, but at 7% and we would have made money, we have to get better at the actuarial nature of mm. assigning the hurdle. So how do we extrapolate then a Goldman Sachs failure and what appears to me on the surface still as something that would fall into like pro bono work into a viable business model? That's, that's what I'm hoping that we can drill down on. My understanding is that a lot of 
heavy hitters like Goldman Sachs mm -hmm. are moving in the direction of social impact finance. And so because of that, this is part of that portfolio. It's not, obviously not all of their social impact finance, but this is part of that. And it is riskier, but because it has the potential to introduce a performance threshold or hurdle into social impact finance. I think there's a lot of interest in it. And you're right, that initial project actually, it's both a good example and a bad example. It's a good example in terms of the mechanics of how it works, but it's a bad example in that it wasn't successful. However, the New York State Department of Corrections, it's my understanding that they did actually adopt that program, despite the fact that they didn't reach 10%. Yeah. So one of the implicit possibilities of pay for success is that it shines light on a public sector actor that has the opportunity to do something more effectively. And so we think it's perfect for our work because we hope to demonstrate that solar is a better investment. We often describe our solar assistance work, our community solar for community action work as a more fiscally responsible and environmentally appropriate solution to energy poverty. And yeah. the final thing I'll say in response to your very tough question is that Pay for success has been mostly deployed in kind of squishy human service environments, right? Where it's not pre-securitized. It's difficult in early childhood education. It's important, but kind of difficult to quantify the benefit, right? Yeah, you mentioned Head Start as an example. Exactly, exactly. One of the reasons that we're really excited about using it in our program model is that there's an extent to which the investment is pre-securitized. We all know what the value of the energy generation is going to be. And that's all above and beyond the human benefit of reducing energy poverty, the qualitative benefit of ensuring that our low-income neighbors have agency in choosing where their energy comes from, right? So the fact that we know what the low-income solar asset is going to do makes it a secure investment for players such as Goldman Sachs and others. Well, I can tell you, we have some solar warriors out there who've made a decision in their career to focus on the social impact, and this is going to resonate with them. I love the idea, and that's one of the reasons why when your team reached out to me on Twitter and you and I had our first call, not only was I just struck with awe for the work that you guys are doing, but it seems like a gap that needs to be filled, and, and I certainly hope that if there's anything that, that as, as uh, the Suncast community, the Suncast tribe, we could do to help you further that business, folks will certainly reach out. Towards the end of the episode, we'll certainly give them the opportunity to do that. You know, one of the most common struggles I hear from you solar developers out there is the management process for your portfolio of projects under development. And that's exactly why FTC Solar created Atlas. It's the answer to managing this complex process. Atlas simplifies the collection and storage of project-level information, putting everything related to the project quickly within the stakeholder's reach. This lets your experts in real estate, utilities, power contracts, technology, and finance all communicate much more effectively. To learn more and request a free demo, please head over to go.ftcsolar.com forward slash suncast. Or you could just click on the FTC Solar banner at mysuncast.com. I want to ask if there are things that come to mind for you as you've been doing this for 19 years that stand out as moments of clarity for you as an entrepreneur, things that you would advise yourself sort of looking back either to, to hold on, not lose faith or core elements of learning that you say contributed to the ability for you guys to persist for this long. 
thing that's been of great value to us is, I guess, what we loosely call adaptive management, right? I mean, there's always the new, new, and that's particularly true in the solar industry. So one thing that's been of great value to us is just being nimble, being adaptive, and actually applying that to our management strategy, our business development strategy. The solar coaster has not been kind uh, in many markets. And so you have to learn to, to roll with the punches. The other thing that's been really useful to us is just gumption stick to itiveness. You know, I mean, when we started in 2000, we were pretty much a lone wolf in terms of talking about solar within energy assistance. And people generally said, you can't, you can't, you can't, Mm -hmm. you know, and most people still say that actually. And so I think that uh, just being persistent, right to your question, just being persistent is probably the single biggest asset that that we have as an organization is just tenacious persistence because like i said earlier you know i'm 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 convinced that if we were to have this conversation 10 years from now we would be talking about the nuts and bolts and the nuance of how solar is integrated into energy assistance not whether or not it could or should be i love you bringing it back to that sense of grit and if there's one thing that stands out for me as a core element for all entrepreneurs but certainly When I look back at the 154 interviews I've done with founders and and entrepreneurs in this business, grit is a core element. The ability to find the thing that they believe is going to work and persist even in the face of difficulty. And when you could just turn the corner and make money in other ways that would be easier. So you have a, a very traditional business as a subsidiary to the nonprofit. So we're a little bit of an anomaly in the nonprofit sector in that our nonprofit business actually owns a subsidiary. In fact, in 2014, our nonprofit took program and spun it off to become a self-standing business and the nonprofit now is the sole owner. So that subsidiary is a general and electrical contractor and it does market rate solar design build throughout the upper Midwest. And we deliver solar design build services to the residential, commercial, certainly those two markets, as well as schools, local units of government. Uh, We do some smaller utility scale work. And so that subsidiary, you know, it certainly isn't a cash cow, but it's definitely becoming a cash calf. And because we're, you know, we're encouraging self-reliance among our low income clients. So we also, as a nonprofit, want to walk our talk. We want to also be as self-reliant as we can be as an organization. So the wholly owned subsidiary generates revenue for the nonprofit to continue to do the work that it does. Not all of it, not even close to half of it, but over time, we're hoping that it will become part of our sustainable business model so we can continue to lean in on this conversation. Another way that you are able, I believe, to lean into the grit and the adaptive management is through learning from those around you mentors, folks that have poured into your life. What are some key lessons and takeaways from the most important mentors in your life or career? And how do you then turn that as a a learning for your team? It's kind of ironic because one of the things that we've learned is to continue to be open to learning. You know, when we first entered this space, uh, we were 
potentially overconfident in terms of exactly how it would work, exactly how solar would be integrated into energy assistance, exactly how we would serve families. And we quickly realized that we didn't know enough about the community. We, we were motivated more by passion than actual professionalism. And so I think one of the things we've learned from our mentors is to continue to learn and to continue to be open to modifying, tweaking, adjusting our tack, uh, if you will. I love that. What I hear you saying is don't be overconfident in exactly how your business model and plan is going to be executed. One of the guys that I listen to the most, uh, Reed Hoffman, who most are familiar with as the founder of LinkedIn, calls it being an infinite learner and understanding that you got to be humble about the execution of your business. You can hold that delicate butterfly in your hand, but you don't know exactly when it's going to take flight. Yeah, the other thing I would probably uh, say in response to that is a lot of the folks that were part of the early team at Real were, you know, environmental and social justice activists, frankly, right? And so we didn't know a great deal about business management. So we immediately had to turn to mentors to make sure that we could we could make it to year two and year three. And one of the things that I learned early on is the value of a big value proposition, right? Because we were initially motivated as activists by environmental and social justice, we were really only looking at our work through one lens. But over time, I've come to realize, if not even embrace a lot of the conservative arguments for the work that we do. And that's been a real interesting personal growth process for me, right? And so I now describe our work as a very big tent. And regardless of your political persuasions, I think you can find value in this model because it is a more fiscally responsible way to do good serving our low-income communities, right? And so it's a big tent. And I've learned that from many of my mentors. Is there anything in particular along the path that you would couch as a failure or a pivot point that really influenced your own understanding of business or the direction of the company? Yeah, there have been no shortage of failures and missteps. Uh, We've learned a lot from them. And actually, I think that's another lesson learned, you know, is that fall down six, get up seven, that kind of thing, right? I mean, that's, I know it's trite and nothing new, but it certainly is something that we've embraced because we generally try and lean forward, but not lean forward so far that we fall on our face. That's also kind of a funny little mantra that we use uh, because you have to, you, you can't be, risk averse in this industry. And especially when you're trying to create an absolutely, when you're trying to forge a new model, right? You cannot be risk averse. So one of the things that was definitely a pivot point, I wouldn't describe it as a failure necessarily, but a big pivot point is when we started, we were focused almost exclusively on solar thermal as being the technology that would ultimately be embraced by energy assistance. Huge pivot. Although solar thermal is still a valuable technology, we've focused almost exclusively now, right? So it's a really big pivot. We've focused almost exclusively now on community solar for integration into the energy assistance program. Yeah, I didn't realize that community solar was the angle that you're now approaching, which that's a massive departure in skill set for your engineering team to look at rolling out residential or low-income housing, apartment building, hot water to developing one to 10 megawatt ground mount solar systems for communities, right? Like probably on the small side, 250 to 500 kilowatts. Totally. The subsidiary that we talked about a minute ago, right? It actually started as kind of an internal program at the nonprofit. And that started in 2004. And so that program at that time was doing PV installations for homeowners and businesses. And so we developed the skill set quite some time ago. 
But we actually developed a solar heating technology that we thought was well-suited for both weatherization and energy assistance programs. We have a patent on it. The inventors gave the patent to the organization. So BJ, one of my colleagues, and I are both on the actual patent. So we gave that technology to the organization. And we were manufacturing for many years. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of installations in 11 states with that equipment that's still running. That's a technology I live with in northern Minnesota. But even though we have a patent, even though we had a manufacturing facility and we're manufacturing for years, we decided that solar electricity was more germane to the work that we're doing now. But I will say that although it's no longer a part of our bread and butter, our daily emphasis, we actually licensed another organization to manufacture that technology. And it's an organization that's based in the White Earth Nation in Northwest Minnesota. So it's owned now by a tribal nonprofit that is doing very similar work. And of course, a lot of our First Nations in the United States are particularly dependent on delivered fuels. So propane and oil and very high cost of energy, very high energy burdens in most of our First Nations, not all of them, of course. But So this organization that we've partnered with and that we've licensed to manufacture this technology is now doing similar work. So they're disseminating that technology, they're installing that technology, and they're identifying low-income band members that can benefit from it. So it's still in existence, but we've pivoted. Right there, the story of passing that technology along to a First Nation participant, uh, a tribe there in Minnesota, I can just see the impact they would have, not just in the U.S., but in North America, as so many First Nations in Canada have to deal with this as a core infrastructure need and problem that you guys have, uh, have found a way to address. So I'd like to move a, a little bit beyond the business model and the lessons learned into a segment that we, that we call Hot or Hype. I'll name a specific market or topic, and you can take 30, 60 seconds. Let me know if you think it's hot or all hype and why. And the first is microgrids. Ooh, absolutely hot. <laughs> so we're really excited about microgrids because actually, although energy of poverty is a real issue here in the United States, it's obviously much more acute in the global south where you know more than one and a half billion people don't even have access to electricity. So our organization has started to do some very exciting international work developing solar microgrids for critical infrastructure, primarily hospitals. So we're developing, designing, funding, and building solar microgrids for hospitals in West and Central Africa. One of the great outcomes of that work is that it's actually helping foster better health outcomes. It's really hard to deliver high quality health care in the absence of consistent electricity. Yeah. And I'm excited about the fact that the African market is going to be one of the fastest growing solar markets in the future. And rather than traverse the entire continent with a fossil fuel based capital intensive land based electric grid, we can skip the grid, which is the name of our initiative. We can skip the grid and go directly to community-owned, democratizing, decentralized energy for critical infrastructure. And one thing that the Solar Warrior Tribe, the Suncast Tribe, might be really excited to consider is that there is no photovoltaic manufacturing capacity in Africa. And I've always asked myself, why? That's a massive business opportunity, in my opinion. And I am convinced it'll be one of the fastest growing markets in the near future. 
I don't know about the continent of Africa in terms of other state, other countries, but South Africa in particular, there for sure are at least a couple of manufacturers, Seraphim Energy being one that has a plant there that actually, to their benefit, uh, qualifies for coming to the U.S. tariff-free. Uh, I, huh. I, yeah, few people know that, and it's because their plant is sold out perpe- perpetually because of that. Wow, right? I stand corrected. Yeah, but it's, I mean, but it's a dramatic uh, gap in the market. Wow. You're absolutely Definitely. right. Yeah. Well, the next topic, uh, well, first of all, that's, I love the idea of Skip the Grid, uh, the name, uh, it resonates. I had no idea that you guys are doing uh, this type of work out in uh, developing nations. And I think that 90% of the answers for microgrids for folks that participate in Suncast is white hot and particularly useful for energy po- serving energy poverty outside of the United States. So the next topic. Vehicle to grid. And I'm talking about the nexus of distributed energy and e-mobility. Is it still wait and see? Is it hot? Is it hype? I mean, it's definitely hot. There's no doubt about it. But I guess it's just kind of a question... Who's it hot for, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're you know we're still seeing so many communities where you know there's virtually no opportunity to even participate in the clean energy sector for many low-income families. So we don't really spend a lot of time talking about. EVs and and things of that nature because I just don't think it's a reality for a lot of low income communities who are still tr- struggling to put tires on their on their car right so I would say definitely hot but probably not in in the communities in which we work I mean s- solar for all intents and purposes is still for the upper echelons mm-hmm. and that's probably even more true for EVs right the next topic is blockchain and particularly how blockchain is being utilized and deployed within the energy sector. Hot or hype? Again, I'd probably say hot, but I really need to learn so much more about it. I've got a major blockage when it comes to blockchain. I just don't get it yet. Yeah, Confession. Totally. Well, that's fine. Well, here's, the, here's one that I feel you will have an answer for. Are there any particular markets or market mechanisms that you do believe are hype? I actually have been a bit of an outlier, outsider in terms of tax equity. Mm -hmm. I've always been a little bit skeptical about the value of tax equity, particularly in low-income solar finance. My concern is that tax equity really leads to a situation where the vast majority of the benefits of that project are on behalf of the financier and not the low-income community. So when tax equity is part of the capital stack of a low-income solar project, a great deal of that value of that revenue is immediately on behalf of the financier, not the low-income community. Yeah, it also leads to bloated projects for the sake of harvesting the tax equity. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Without pointing to companies or names, we saw a lot of that in Louisiana, didn't we? And not just Louisiana, I don't want to pick on one state, but... There's a lot. There's a lot of examples uh, in the country of programs to, are targeted towards low income, where solar companies step in with huge tax equity backers mm. and are selling six dollar a watt solar systems. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and it's very closely related. So I'll also, also say that a lot of low income initiatives are siting projects in low income communities, but we've always said that proximity does not equal inclusivity. And so just because there's a community solar project or a project being described as low income, just because it's in a low income community doesn't necessarily mean it's benefiting low income 
community members. Oh boy, we we are opening up a whole can of worms now, brother. We could do a whole other episode on this one topic. I love the idea. Proximity does not equal inclusivity. And man, is that going to be a problem for Opportunity Zones. That's a good point. <laughs> well, leaving that aside, it might be fun actually just to have, I mean, I think it's going to be fun to have that conversation with you and John and all the folks that are looking at, uh, at Opportunity Zones because so much money is going to be poured into low-income neighborhoods, which are why they're called opportunity zones. And it is, it is almost, it is a scheme. Let's be honest. It's a tax scheme for the rich to get richer, but it's one that we're desperately trying to figure out how can we leverage, how can we harness this, this dragon, right? So much like the energy assistance program, which has been up to date, de facto fossil fuel subsidy, you are doing, you know, the Lord's work, as they say, trying to harness that activity and the infrastructure built in there to redeploy those dollars to save those dollars by accessing renewable, sustainable power. Jason, what are the books that have influenced your thought process, your thinking? What, what do you what do you gift or recommend the most and why? I really need to make more time, find more time to read more often because I got a stack of them that I unfortunately haven't gotten to. But some of my favorites are E.F. Schumacher, This mm-hmm. I Believe. Hmm. Another one is probably Fritjof Capra, Turning Point. Fritjof Capra is the author. He also wrote The Tao of Physics, uh, but I believe it was his next book was called Turning Point. How do you spell that name? I've never heard of it. Uh, I think it's F-R-I-T-J-O-F. Mm-hmm. And that Capra is just C-A-P-R-A. Okay. Capra. He's a, I spelled that completely wrong. <laughs> a, I believe he's a professor of physics here in the States. Another one is uh, Lauren Isley, The Star Thrower. The Star Thrower. What's that all about? It's a collection of short stories. They're philosophical, inspirational, somewhat metaphysical, maybe. Those are a couple books that have definitely been influential to me. Those are all nonfiction, of course. Any fiction that's been on your reading list lately? Uh, I'm a big reader of Octavia Butler, mm-hmm. Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Talents. It's uh, speculative fiction. I love speculative fiction. What does life look 20 years from now, 25 years from now? You clearly are. I'm not, but you clearly are the type of visionary who would be, would be interested in and building companies as, as an example toward looking 25 years down the road. I love that. No, I'll check it out. Octavia Butler, Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Talents. Sounds like it draws from the stories, the actual parables in the Bible. Is that accurate? I'm assuming so. Yeah. I drew the same conclusion, but actually I'm less familiar with the source of the... Got it. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Jason, what habit or consistent practice do you feel has given you a particular amount of leverage or the greatest impact in your work? I think the practice that's been most beneficial to me is chop wood, carry water. I've always really made an effort to uh, live very simply. For those unfamiliar, I know it very well, but please say the entire phrase so that folks can understand because this is a deep metaphysical uh, concept. Before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. So I, I live very simply. I live out in the sticks and it's where I find my peace and my strength and my energy to keep on keeping on. So I do a lot of chopping of wood and carrying yeah, of water. <laughs> I love it. Very literal in your sense, very Indeed. metaphysical in my life. That has been one of the phrases, uh, I believe accurately credited to the Buddha, that stands out for me as a guiding principle. Even as a Christian, it's something that stands out to me as a guiding principle. Uh, There's a lot in the metaphysical realm Mm -hmm. that 
that Christians get wrong, frankly. <laughs> so I love it, man. I love that, that that is for you a guiding principle and a consistent practice in, uh, in the way that you think. Well, as we wrap up here, where can people find you, Jason? How can they tap into the work that you're doing and touch base and stay connected? Oh my gosh, please visit us at real.org. That's R-R-E-A-L.org. And of course, also on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. I'll link to them in the show notes, but what's, do you know the Twitter handle offhand? I do. It's at Real Solar. R-E-A-L Solar, right? Correct. R-R-E-A-L Solar. And shout out to the person that manages that account because that's how this event came to be. That's how we met and I'm able to now be friends with uh, such a deep thinker and entrepreneur. I love it. I'm going to link to your LinkedIn. I'll also link to the Real LinkedIn page. Do you want to share? Is there an email or or another way that they could uh, reach out to your team? Please. Please contact me at Mm -hmm. Jason at real.org. And as we go into the home stretch here, how can the Suncast audience help, Jason? What ask would you have? You've got a you've got an audience of thousands of people here. You know, it would be incredible if the Suncast tribe would reach out to their policymakers and their community to learn more about energy assistance and also to advocate for the decarbonization of energy assistance for the integration of solar energy into the energy assistance program, both a local program and the national program, and to encourage that all low-income community members can have the ability to choose where their energy comes from. You know, we have an opportunity as a part of this energy transition to not only move to a clean energy economy, but also to address income inequality, to ensure greater equity in society. So this is very much about solar energy. This is very much about clean energy, but it's also about helping ensure that we have an equitable, just future. It's noble work, Jason. I also want to make a call out to the tribe. If you're listening to this and you work for a marketing agency, you work for a PR firm, and you can find it in your budget to help real. They, like every nonprofit, have real needs from a messaging and a PR perspective. To get this message out is not easy. It's not free. I would just make the call to our tribe. Please uh, take it upon yourself. If you have the, the bandwidth and the budget, reach out to Jason, offer your services. I believe in what they're doing, and I want to see this message proliferated. And I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to bring him on the show today. Well, let's end today with a bold prediction, Jason. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking. I think I know what it is, but what's in your crystal ball? I predict that in five years, in 10 years, solar energy will be very much a part of the energy assistance program. We and many of our partners are forging a new model of energy assistance that will be a part of our nation's future. And the 40 million Americans that are living in energy poverty will have the opportunity to benefit from the cost stabilizing qualities of solar energy. Jason Edens is founder and executive director of the Rural Renewable Energy Alliance, RREAL.org. And it has been a fantastic honor to have you on the show today, Jason. Thanks for sharing about a topic that uh, I've, I've, I wager many are going to be newbies too. And I hope that we as a tribe not only take up the torch, but reach out and see how we can help. Thank you so much, Nico. I really appreciate your interest and your time. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warrior, but the discussion does not have to end here. Oh, no. I hope that, as I, you were inspired by this episode. And if you were, we'd love to know about it. 
Jason and I met through hashtag energy Twitter, so it's fitting that we carry on a conversation over there as well. Would you mind posting your thoughts on Twitter or LinkedIn and tagging Jason, the real folks, and I? Of course, you can also find and comment on the LinkedIn and Twitter posts that we've made for this episode. We're eager to hear how this one has impacted you and what you're going to do about it. As always, you can find the Twitter handles and other resources and highlights from these discussions over on the blog at mysuncast.com. If you click on the listen link at the top, you'll go to the episodes page where you can find show notes, social media and website links, and many other goodies covered in each and every episode, including book recommendations, and other ways to connect with today's guest. While you're there, I do hope that you'll check out the Suncast Tribe, where you can be a part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. We have a thriving conversation going on over on Slack, checking out our book club and book recommendations, as well as digging in at things like SEO. And of course, where folks are going to be traveling and meeting up, our Suncast Tribe exists on WhatsApp, on Slack, in many different areas, but you have to join to be a member. Click on that member button to learn how to gain access to that and uncut interviews, tribe exclusives that just don't make it into the Suncast feed. Of course, you can also subscribe to the newsletter where you'll be notified when the new episodes are out and perhaps where I'll be next in the world. And hey, speaking of next, do tune in next week where we'll meet Alex Bajanov of Lumen, another Charlottesville-based entrepreneur who aims to disrupt the smart home market. Well, I truly value your smart investment here each and every week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. 